it's very exciting to, to have a chance to be a part of the Global Development Forum. Um, in various previous chapters of my life, um, I have kind of worked, lived in and around the development world. Um, actually, uh, my, my parents work in the development field, um, so I grew up uh, bouncing around the world uh, in developing countries. Um, half expect them to be here somewhere in the audience. Um, uh, and also, when I was at the State Department, worked uh, uh, from my position uh, in the Human Rights Bureau, uh, looking at the safeguards uh, that various international financial institutions put in place to try and address um, human uh, and societal risks. Um, so it's really exciting to be to be here with you all. I appreciate that this is not perhaps the normal audience that, that I'm used to speaking to, not necessarily uh, folks who have uh, deep human rights law backgrounds or technology experience, so I will try to minimize my reliance on acronyms and jargon, but forgive me if I'm not 100% successful. I want to just sort of take this opportunity to speak specifically um, about a specific approach to partnership um, that is working to address a particular set of human rights concerns that are salient to the information communication technology sector. So ICT is the, the jargon that I'll, I'll use to refer to that, um, that sector uh, uh, um, uh, in, in general terms. The particular set of human rights concerns revolve around government demands or restrictions that are placed upon ICT companies that can have human rights impacts on their users. Primarily those impacts um, would be characterized in terms of freedom of expression or privacy. So we're talking, for instance, about uh, an overbroad government demand to a company um, to censor an entire website, say Wikipedia, um, because there is one page on that website that is um, uh, offensive to the government or that the government thinks is, is inaccurate, right? So that would be an example of a demand that is under international human rights law, uh, probably overly broad and disproportionate. Um, and so it puts a company like Wikipedia in a very difficult spot in terms of thinking about how are we going to respond? Do we, do we, um, you know, do we essentially concede to the government and, and change that page? Or do we sort of stick to a, a certain uh, principled stance and say, no, you know, we're not, uh, we don't think that you have a right to, to change this information. This is um, the, the views of our user community um, and risk getting blocked. Um, uh, another kind of uh, government demand that, that could be seen as overbroad would be a request for user data. So in a lot of instances, governments are, for a variety of different purposes, trying to see behind the pseudonymous accounts that users, po uh, that users have on platforms um, to identify in real life who they are and, and where they may be. Um, and uh, companies um, on a regular basis have to field these law enforcement requests. Um, and um, in many instances, they're perfectly legitimate um, and they, the companies um, comply with them pursuant to local law and their own internal procedures. But in some cases, those requests um, can be uh, inappropriate either uh, because they don't follow domestic law requirements um, or because domestic law requirements are inconsistent with international human rights protections for the privacy of those users. So those are the kinds of circumstances um, that the Global Network Initiative uh, is set up to address. Um, so the Global Network Initiative is a specific partnership um, that has been around for about 10 years. Um, so it was founded in 2008 um, after the confluence of a series of disparate conversations between academics, companies, and civil society organizations came together. Um, those conversations were around how tech companies who were becoming increasingly global in terms of their operations and their user base should grapple with um, these demands from governments, in particular, illiberal governments, um, and specifically, um, the government of China. Um, that was really, China was really at the center of a lot of those conver early conversations. Um, so GNI and I um, uh, was created when those different stakeholders came together and realized that they were able to agree on a set of high-level principles based on international human rights law. So we're speaking primarily about the International Civil um, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, Articles 17 and 19, Privacy and Free Expression, respectively. Um, and the principles basically give guidance to ICT companies for how they should try and navigate these government restrictions in a way that um, is defensible and helps to protect the rights of their users. Um, those principles um, and the more detailed and prescriptive implementation guidelines that come along with them 
uh, are freely available and are meant to be used by companies across the ICT sector, so not just um, social media platforms or search engines, but also mobile network initiative, uh, mobile network operators, um, equipment vendors, um, cloud service providers, etc. Um, and you don't have to be a member of GNI to use them. And in fact, we encourage companies of all sorts and all sizes um, to to look at them as a reference. And they've been endorsed by experts, uh, including UN Special Rapporteurs on Privacy and Free Expression, uh, and by rights respecting governments. However, there are a certain number of companies that have taken the further step of joining GNI and committing to uh, not only put these principles into practice, but to opening themselves up to independent assessment of their compliance uh, with these principles, their implementation of these principles. So that's really one of the, the kind of unique things about GNI. Uh, company members every two years undergo uh, this assessment review by independent third parties that we accredit. Um, and those assessments look at both their systems and policies and to the extent, you know, the extent to which they have developed trainings and protocols to ensure that they are prepared to identify circumstances where their uh, response to a government request might infringe on user rights and, and to appropriately address and escalate those. Um, and they also look at case studies. Um, so looking at specific examples over that two-year window of how this has worked in practice recognizing that even the most well-intentioned and well-designed systems and policies might actually not work uh, when put to the test in particular uh, fact patterns. And so we want to capture that. We want to learn from that. The assessment process is not a pass-fail uh, kind of um, uh, process. The idea is really to measure continuous improvement uh, on the part of the companies over time. We don't expect perfect uh, implementation of the guidelines. Um, we really, really want to be drawing out the lessons that can be learned uh, from how companies are attempting to grapple with these difficult circumstances and then help to socialize them across uh, our other company members as well as our other stakeholders. Um, in addition to assessment, which is really the foundation of GNI, we also do um, uh, shared learning, which is uh, we, we've sort of built a community of trust um, through this assessment process and through our common commitment to the principles. Um, and that allows us to, uh, in a much more kind of uh, real-time sense, address emerging technological issues, emerging regulatory challenges. Um, we have a platform that can bring together experts from across academia, civil society, investors, and of course the companies. Um, and that platform is, I think, greatly valued by our members. Um, it is oftentimes confidential, um, but occasionally we also do public learning. And then the last function is policy, which is my specific domain. We look across our now 62 members from all over the world and try and identify where they have shared um, policy priorities and actually try and shape the global policy, legal, regulatory environment so that laws that put companies in these challenging circumstances perhaps can be changed and made more rights respecting. Um, so that's a little bit about sort of how GNI works. Um, maybe I'll just. Do you want to pause there? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was great. Um, and, and one thing I always think about when we look at initiatives like GNI or what I'm about to ask you to talk about um, is this idea of knowing and showing. So there is actually some international law applicable to the business and human rights space. It's called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And it was globally, it was, it was unanimously approved by the UN Human Rights Council in 2011. And one of the things it calls for, it calls for both governments to do their job of protecting people's human rights from adverse impacts by business, but it also actually calls for business itself to respect human rights. And that basically means to have a management system that identifies and uh, prevents adverse human rights impacts. But one key element is always, it's this idea of knowing and showing. So as a business, you should know what you're doing and how you're addressing these potential human rights adverse impacts, but also the rest of the world should be able to understand what you're doing. And so I was hoping, Jason, I mean, I think with GNI, with the Global Network Initiative, you know, there's the audit process, it's multi-stakeholder. It's not necessarily super public, but, but there is some kind of verification process there because of the audits or assessments. Um, but I think you, had, you were talking to me on the phone the other day about a few other uh, recent efforts you've seen by companies to sort of know and show. Can you yeah. talk about one or two of those? Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the trickiest things, I think, about um, trying to comply with these UN uh, guiding principles for business and human rights. Um, you know, uh, companies, to the extent that they are uh, effectively mitigating the impacts of some of these overbroad government restrictions and demands, um, are obviously in a very sensitive position when they do so. And so just going out publicly and sort of 
saying, hey, we, we refuse to comply with this order from you know, repressive regime A, or um, we decided to push back on this request uh, and, and you know, threatened that we would take uh, this agency to court because we didn't think they were following their own domestic law, isn't probably the most strategic way to be able to continue to preserve that space for future uh, mitigation and, and, uh, and action vis-a-vis -vis the government. Um, so GNI tries to solve that in part by using this kind of third-party uh, validation uh, approach where we, we say, okay, look, companies, we understand that you can't say publicly, you know, talk public about everything you do because to some extent that's revealing what in the intelligence community they would call sources and methods, right, and that can compromise uh, the effectiveness of those uh, approaches going forward. <clears throat> Instead, why don't we sort of sign all the necessary confidentiality agreements and build the structure that allows for a more closed but open uh, sharing of information and then allow you know, groups like Human Rights Watch and the Center for Democracy and Technology and the Committee for the Protection of Journalists to be a part of this review to really understand and see what you're doing in practice and to some extent for them to help validate for you to your users and to the public um, that you are really trying very hard to, to, to do what the UN Guiding Principles and the GNI Principles ask you to do. Um, there have been other uh, efforts that, that have started to kind of, um, uh, that I've started to see emerging in the ICT sector. I should say that approach, that multi-stakeholder approach with some form of kind of auditing and assessment uh, is, is, you can see examples of that uh, in other sectors. For example, in the private security sector, there's an initiative that I was very involved in helping to set up when I was in the State Department um, for um, the, the labor and apparel sector. The Fair Labor Association does something uh, similar. Um, so it's not unique to GNI. Um, in the tech sector, though, there are another, there are kind of a few other examples that are emerging. I'll just mention one. Um, there's a company called Cloudflare. It's not a direct con to consumer uh, platform, so you may not have heard of it. They are what are sometimes referred to as an edge network provider or a content delivery network. Um, they put servers all over the world and help and cache basically all of the content on the internet, at least their clients' content, so that it is faster when it is delivered to your end device. Um, and um, so they're in a very interesting position in the, in the technology stack in the global ICT ecosystem. Um, they have developed a new product called Warp, which is a, essentially a, an enhanced virtual private network, a VPN. Many of you may, may use VPNs or be familiar with them. Um, and I recommend if you are interested in VPNs that you check out Warp. Um, I don't work for Cloudflare, so I, I can say that fairly just as an as a interested user and privacy advocate. Um, but one of the things they've done is they've said, you know, we'll offer this service to you as consumers, and it's actually going to be free. Um, and they've explained why they can do that you know, from a business perspective, because it actually helps their customers get, the customers who are the paying content providers get their content to the users who use this platform more quickly. But even in addition to that, they've said, we, we recognize that you may still not trust us to, to keep our word when we say we're not actually gonna keep any of the private content, uh, private user data information that we have visibility into as this middle person, as this VPN, um, so we're, we've, they've actually committed to having that promise, that commitment audited um, by independent auditors. Uh, and um, so that is something similar in a sense to what GNI companies commit to. What's different is, of course, there isn't a multi-stakeholder network to then see the audit. But to some extent, you can rely on this independent third party uh, validating this commitment. So I think there's room for kind of creative approaches like that that you know, may be appropriate for specific companies. Um, in particular parts of the ecosystem. Contract is another interesting kind of uh, vehicle, I think, under law for um, enforce, providing an enforcement mechanism for some of these human rights-based commitments. That's something I think has been underexplored. Um, so there are a lot of creative approaches out there. I think you know, others on this panel uh, certainly will provide some, some examples of Great, thanks so much, Jason. And, and don't, we will have time for audience Q&A at the end, um, but I first want to let our panelists speak. Um, Australia, as some of you may know, recently passed a law that threatens jail time for executives if certain types of violent content are not taken down quickly enough. And this is obviously a reaction to what happened in Christchurch. I think the legislation was drafted and passed within a, a week. Um, the EU is actually about to finalize legislation that would create quite significant fines if certain kinds of terrorist content is not taken down very, very quickly. The challenge with some of these laws is that they risk excessive self-regulation by business, right? Because the, the penalties are really severe. 
and the expectations are really hard to meet perfectly, even with good intentions. Right? The risk is that actually companies will just start taking down lots and lots and lots of content that will really stifle free expression. Um, but, but potentially there are other ways to approach content moderation. So, so when I say content moder moderation, I mean the ways that companies um, decide what kind of content can be on their site, so through ter terms of service and, and other means. Um, and so, so Eric, I know you've thought about, I mean, you've, worked, you've looked and worked on content moderation issues for years, but I asked you to kind of create a typology of what are the different kinds of ways government could be, become involved in this, from kind of soft approaches all the way through pretty, um, you came up with some really interesting ideas. Uh, yeah, thank you, and it's a delight to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, when, as uh, Amy mentioned, content moderation is a process of cleaning out bad content, um, and the problem is identifying and sorting between bad content and less bad content, and good content is not always automatic, um, and so there's often going to be both the cost involved as well as mistakes that are going to be made on both sides of the equation. Um, so the question is, how could government help internet companies do a better job of content moderation? That was a question I was asked, and I'll answer in just a moment. Um, uh, there's, I think, a widespread perception that content moderation is something other than editorial decisions by the internet companies. Um, sometimes the internet companies um, portray themselves as technology platforms or as um, uh, pipelines for users to pump content down to audiences um, without any intervention on the part of the internet companies. Um, but every form of content moderation is a form of editing uh, the uh, communications of users to an audience. And so um, the difficulty I had with this project is that we're basically asking how could governments help internet companies do the editorial functions that they perform, which sounds a lot like censorship or sounds a lot like content uh, uh, speech controls, things that we might reject as a matter of uh, human rights as well as other considerations. Um, so I'm going to give some ideas about how to do this, but we have to, uh, we can't ignore the backdrop of this conversation, which is that every time we're saying the government's going to do this, is there, are they doing it because of the fact that they're actually trying to fix a social ill, or are they doing it because they're engaging in censorship, or they're trying to control speech? Um, and there could be a fine line uh, distinguishing between the two. Um, having said that, what I'd like to do is give you some thoughts about different ways that governments could be involved with internet companies in trying to solve the problem of removing bad content from the internet. Um, let me start with the first approach, which is to try to give, um, to get internet companies to change their behavior voluntarily. Now, as we know, when governments try to change a company's voluntarily, uh, behavior voluntarily, we start to question how voluntary it really is. Um, but ignoring that for a moment, there are some ways in which governments can give some prompts to internet companies to do things differently. So for example, they could offer certification programs that says, here are the attributes of a well-functioning organization, and if you can demonstrate that you've complied with that, we will give you a certification. I believe GNI, in a sense, acts as a certification body. Is that a fair statement? Yes, but not specifically for content moderation. Understood. But the point is that you know we have a model of certification. Now, GNI is a private entity and an NGO, but governments could do the same thing. They could say, here's a set of behaviors, and if you conform to those behaviors, we'll give you a gold star. Or, alternatively, if you don't conform to your behaviors, we'll give you a bad colored star. Um, <laughs> another thing that governments could do is create liability safe harbors where they say, we will give you the ability to avoid liability if you take certain steps. So you don't have to take those steps. You can accept liability under the standard legal rules. But if you want more favorable legal treatment, we'll give you some opportunities. Um, here in the US, for example, we have the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which says that if internet companies take steps to remove infringing content, they can avoid liability for other types of infringing content. So there's a carrot there. Do some good work and you'll avoid liability for others. Um, the UK has a defamation act, which does a similar type of thing. It says you can avoid liability for user-caused defamation if you have enough information about the users to be able to turn them over to a plaintiff so they can be sued directly. Now, I have some problems with the UK Defamation Act, but it is an example of a safe harbor. It says companies in Europe, if, in, in UK, if this is uh, if, uh, what you want, the reduce your liability, here's a set of steps that you could take that will encourage you to do, but you don't have to. It is your choice. 
Um, and the third example of um, uh, voluntary steps is what we might call best practices or guidelines um, that the government can put out a set of statements. These are things that we expect uh, industry leaders to do. Uh, here in the United States, for example, there was an initiative under the Obama administration uh, run, I think, principally through the Department of Commerce um, that said, we're going to convene multi-stakeholder groups where everyone gets together and we're going to talk about best practices for particular types of technology problems. And if we can reach consensus by having the government sponsor the conversation, not tell anyone what the outcome should be, but having the, the infrastructure to uh, get everyone talking, then uh, the results of those processes would be best practices that then everyone in the industry could follow. And in theory, perhaps there might be consequences if you don't. Um, I don't think that process actually worked. Um, I don't think they ever came up with any best practices they ever adopted. But the model is good, um, at least in theory. Um, let me give you another category of ways that governments can work with internet companies. And that's that they can mandate how companies uh, operate procedurally, not dictate outcomes. So they can say, we're going to tell you what infrastructure you must build internally within the company, and then we'll hope that that will lead to better outcomes by virtue of you operating better. Now, again, if we were to say, could a government tell a traditional print publisher how it should run its processes, we'd start to get really nervous. So let's not ignore that. But there may be things that governments could do procedurally that we might accept. And let's talk about one obvious example. Um, the idea that you could have people whose jobs are going to be the voice of conscience within the company. We have that in situations like... Um, corporate social responsibility. There may be someone whose job it is to be the voice of corporate social responsibility. Or in the privacy area, the uh, EU has mandated through the GDPR that companies have a uh, data protection officer who has legal, re legal responsibilities about things that they must do in order to be the voice of, of data protection within the organization. So by telling someone that a company, they have to have someone with that job function, that's a way of getting the company to perhaps engage in better behavior without, um, uh, without actually telling them exactly what to do. Um, Another thing you can do is that you can mandate education on the part of company employees. So you could tell, say, we want to have mandatory diversity training or we want to have mandatory sexual harassment training for, uh, for companies um, so that the employees know on a day-to-day -day basis uh, more about the potential problems that they might be facing or creating. You can go as far as creating licensure for employees. You could say, in order for you to perform certain types of functions, you must be licensed. Once again, I have to remind you, if we're talking about licenses to produce speech, that's a problem. Um, but we could imagine other types of functions, perhaps, where we would say that licensure might work. Um, I'm going to mention three other things a little more quickly of uh, ways that governments could work with um, uh, internet companies. One is that the governments could try to uh, 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 encourage and or compel the internet companies to produce more information about what they're doing when it comes to content moderation, with the idea that transparency can be a good way of trying to conform behavior as well as identify problems. So you could say, Internet companies, you must tell us more about what content you're moderating, why you did it, and what the consequences were. So, for example, in uh, Germany, the Netz DG law requires internet companies to remove terrorist-related content within a specified time frame. It also requires companies to produce information about their removals so that everyone can know what happened and can start to talk about whether or not that was a good deal. Um, another category would be encouraging information or sharing um, uh, um, or coordination within the internet company. So, for example, if one internet company runs into a problematic item of content, we might want that information shared among other internet companies so they could take a similar action against the same content if they can find it. Um, and so the government can sponsor or encourage the building of infrastructure that allows that kind of information sharing among uh, the uh, community. Um, in fact, we have things like the GIFCT, if you're familiar with it, G-I-F-C-T, that the government nudged the internet companies to create that allows for sharing about content that's been identified as terrorist related. So once one of the companies participating in GIFCT identifies a particular video um, that is deemed to be terrorist content, the other internet companies are aware of it and then they have the opportunity and the expectation that they will block that video uh, in the future. Um, 
And uh, the last thing I'll mention, and it's related to some of the others, but let me just throw it out there for now, um, that governments have a really powerful role of uh, shaming or using their bully pulpit uh, to uh, coerce and or encourage companies to do things. And so one way to get internet companies to do what you want is you just bash them. Um, and governments do that all the time. We had two hearings this week that did exactly that in Congress. So um, these are all ways that governments can work with internet companies to get what they want without potentially necessarily treading upon the free uh, speech rights of the company or its users. Eric, thanks so much. Um, when I, Obviously, I asked you to do a lot in a short time period, so I, I just like to pick a, pick a little bit at where you see some of the strengths and challenges of a few of these approaches. So for example, you talked about GIFCT, right? So this idea of this terrorist content database. So is that a good idea? Is it replicable? Is this something we should be looking to in a serious way? So um, let's talk about the replicability of GIFCT. So you could literally do that for any type of problematic content where uh, once one company has seen that, they could then hash it and tell the rest of the community, this is the hash for that particular item. And if you see the hash of that item coming through your system again, block it. Um, so Eric, it does... Two-second public service description of hashing. Oh, for hashing is to do a way of numerically computing a value for a file that makes it so that that is a unique identifier for that file. So that way, once you've hashed the file, you know that that file, if you see it again, will produce the same number, and no other file with different content will produce the same number. And so you, if you have the algorithm or formula to take a, a content item and then run it through the hashing system, um, it's going to produce the same number. And so everyone can then use the same methodology of identifying uh, the file uniquely. Thank you for helping me with that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so is it limited to terrorist content? Absolutely not. Pick your, your objectionable content. You could, uh, uh, it could be run through the same system. Now, here's the problems with GIFCT. There are two main ones. One is that under U.S. law, the th many of the things that are identified as terrorist content are actually still protected by the First Amendment. Now, some of you may have trouble with that, and I understand that I'm not looking for trouble. Um, but just acknowledge that there are many types of things that terrorists produce that are actually protected under the First Amendment. And as a result, when a government-encouraged uh, system blocks those videos or other content, they are blocking First Amendment-protected speech. Now, if a private entity does that, that's not a First Amendment problem. When the government mandates it, that's a big problem. Um, and if it were to be replicated across other things than terrorist content, we're also likely to be talking about things that are protected by the First Amendment, and therefore we're going to be compounding the free speech problem. The other main problem is that we have no transparency into what GIFCT does. So GIFCT is a private initiative run by uh, the major internet companies that is followed by other smaller internet companies. And we don't know what videos have been placed into the GIFCT, which videos have been hashed and identified as terrorist content. And we have no um, ability to then question whether those, those were done properly. In addition, if a video was hashed as uh, terrorist content in GIFCT, the person who created or published that video has no clear recourse to get that video back online if they object and have provable basis that it was actually incorrectly uh, identified. So it, the private nature of the system actually exposes why we normally want governments to do this. There is no due process. There is no accountability within the GIFCT system uh, for this. And they can hash things um, and block things that are uh, uh, covered by the Constitution, and there's no recourse for anyone to actually impose the constitutional protections on that speech. Can I just add one, one minor thing to that, just maybe specific to my Twitter universe, but not infrequently, I see posts on Twitter that pe where people are complaining about the fact that certain content was taken down on another platform. And I'm, I'm sure it happens in the other direction as well, that something that was taken down on Twitter, somebody goes on Facebook and says, hey, can you believe that Twitter wouldn't let me post this? And to the extent that you in enforce uniform rules across all the platforms, that is no longer possible, right? Because it's being taken down everywhere. Yeah, I think in a way, Eric, what you said is, because I was, I was going to ask, it was my understanding that, that the contents of this database were not publicly available, right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem where you can't show, 
right? So there's not mm -hmm. that kind of validation of what's happening. Um, and when we think about sort of what I would call private governance, which this is government-induced private governance, but still having that capacity to show what you're doing to a broader public is really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you about one other, um, one other of the approaches you mentioned, which is the safe harbor one. Mm -hmm. So what, to me, you know, the idea of sort of if you have in place adequate safeguards, adequate process, however you define that, um, there is some kind of safe harbor or benefit to incentivize good behavior. What's, what's the downside of that? Uh, so uh, the downside is, um, in theory, nothing, right? That safe harbors actually are a way for the government to say this is good behavior and um, we're going to reward it. And, as a, uh, and by inference, everything else is still illegal like it always was or still going to create legal problems for you as it always has. Um, Safe harbors are hard to draft in practice, especially for um, uh, technology, which moves really rapidly. So normally what will happen uh, is that um, the, they will hard code in certain technological assumptions into the safe harbor that become silly over time. So let me mention the DMCA online safe harbor. DMCA is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It was passed in 1998. And there are five main operative safe harbors within the DMCA, A, B, C, D, and E. Um, of, and I'm happy to talk about them in detail. For now, just acknowledge the only one that actually still is used is C. A, B, D, and E are artifacts of a prior time, that they had too many technological assumptions that are no longer relevant today. Nobody uses them. Um, and so you'll say, hey, the government did great. They got a safe harbor that's lasted for 20 plus years. Yes, but notice that there were a bunch of other things on people's minds in 1998 that fell by the wayside. Similarly, we can also note that safe harbors may look voluntary, but they might compel behavior that is actually really problematic. And let me go back to the UK Defamation Act. So the UK Defamation Act says if you don't want to be liable for defamation, collect enough information about your users so that you can identify them to a plaintiff so they can be sued directly. And that sounds, I can get that deal. But once that data is collected, it's not just limited to being used by defamation plaintiffs. It's now available for any plaintiff to go and get that information, as well as the government. So everyone's going to collect the information in order to take advantage of the UK Defamation Act safe harbor, but they're going to create this now database that becomes a honeypot for other malicious activity by government and other private plaintiffs. Great. Thanks, Eric. Um, I want to turn to our last speaker now, Steve. Um, he's going to make some of this quite concrete from a company perspective. So Microsoft has pretty strong commitments to human rights and has for a number of years and really has undertaken some really interesting initiatives over time. Um, I think he's going to focus primarily on uh, how Microsoft's engaging on the topic of facial recognition actually at the state level and making some progress. And how does a responsible company do that in a transparent, open way that we think is credible and not, you know, not sketchy? Okay, thanks. Um, I would like to say, though, because uh, we will have Q&A opportunity um, on Jason, GNI. Uh, Microsoft's a member of that. I'm on the executive committee of the board. So I, there are lots of questions that might be asked on that. I'd like to take up some of the things Eric mentioned, not to um, explain them, but just to prompt thinking even as you hear me talk about facial recognition. One of them is multi-stakeholder approaches. Uh, so there are public-private partnerships. We've done things with the United Nations. We've done things with uh, states, uh, governments, national governments. There's industry cooperation like GIF-CT, uh, which you heard about. That one is really a challenging one. We might have some conversation. That technology started with child pornography images. So this is content that is illegal literally everywhere in the world. It is illegal for you to access and look at that, which is one of the challenges with the transparency. Then what we decided to do, and Microsoft funded the work to create the initial technological solution for hashing and getting this um, numerical value that would tell you this number corresponds to this still image, and that is an illegal image. Therefore, all of us should remove it from the internet. Then we applied it to terrorist content. And now the challenge is you're dealing with embedded videos. So think of what you're doing. You're taking the content of something and getting a number value from it. What happens when you start embedding a lot of random video in with the video you want to stop? What's the hash look like at that point? Can you, in fact, identify and break it down into pieces? Those are technological problems that uh, people are working with. So I don't want people to leave thinking, boy, there's an obvious solution. Why aren't we just doing uh, the simple thing we ought to be doing. Um, another is uh, there's industry cooperation. There's a thing, the Tech Accord, that 
Microsoft and about, I believe it's now 60 other uh, big companies across the globe have signed up to where we um, have agreed that for attacks on the internet, on civilian infrastructure, we view ourselves as first responders and we have a, a very public statement that we will assist anyone, anywhere who's being attacked on, with the internet and on their infrastructure. Um, and similarly, we have a corresponding promise, which is we will not help any government anywhere, anytime conduct such attacks on the civilian internet. So there are things that we've done and there are lots of things we should be building on as we look at uh, the problems we, we now face. So let me go to um, facial recognition. And again, some contextual background is probably gonna be helpful. Um, we published a book in January a year ago called The Future Computed. Um, and the subtitle was Artificial Intelligence and Its Role in Society. You can download it from the web. It's not a, a sales pitch of any sort. It's a reflection by Microsoft on what are the ethical sorts of constraints and considerations that ought to inform the development of artificial intelligence. We ended up calling for a human-centered approach, saying always put the individual human being in the experience of humankind at the center of your development thinking, uh, what you actually build, and then how you deploy it and under what constraints. Um, we're a global company, and so again, a little bit of a backtrack. We do business everywhere we're permitted to do business. So I um, regularly travel China, Russia, other parts of the world. And for us, it's really important that we actually have a principled way we can speak to what we do as Microsoft. So we ground ourselves in international human rights law on these hard issues that we've been uh, talking about. With regard to AI, we actually put forward in the book, and again, you can download it, just look for Future Computed Microsoft, free download, or um, you can get, read it online. And we said there are a number of principles that we ought to borrow from that have worked historically and need to be applied. They might need to be adapted. But one of them is accountability. Humans or companies who are an extension of humans should be accountable for what they're uh, building with AI. Transparency, people need an ability to understand what is happening with this uh, technology that's come out. It doesn't necessarily mean you see the source code, which might not provide any information that's usable, but it should have an understandability dimension. Then we noted that um, there needed to be some attributes that any company should be held to under this transparency notion. Fairness, reliability and safety, privacy and security, because people are going to hack in. Think of all the data being collected by the Internet of Things, all of the things in your house and the rest. If you're building an AI solution, what's your privacy um, defenses? How have you thought about that? What have you done to protect that? What's the security against hacking? Um, and then inclusiveness. So is it truly um, inclusive for everybody on the planet? Um, we noted in there uh, an organization we'd created called the Ether Committee. Ether is a just clever acronym. It's AI and Ethics in Engineering and Research. So I sit on one of the uh, subcommittees of that where we look at for particular uses of AI, what are the human rights constraints or concerns that we think needed to be considered and do we or do we not want to pursue uh, very significant business opportunities. Uh, we've been public, we've turned down, we don't identify the, the particular customer or country or whatever, but we have said we're turning down significant pieces of business because of our human rights and ethics concerns on those. So with facial recognition in particular, the way I think of it is we have to distinguish some things that are good. So um, Amy mentioned AI can be good, facial recognition can be good. If you think of it in terms, there are lots of children who've been reunited with parents because AI was actually used successfully to identify this child as the missing child. Um, there are other scenarios that I have no concerns with. I actually am fairly concerned about my civil liberties. I do a lot of international travel. As I mentioned, I often show my passport. It doesn't bother me to think that there's an AI solution on the screen in front of the immigration uh, person who looks at my passport photo, looks at the photo, we're all used to getting a picture of ourselves as we stand in the booth, and saying, yep, there's a 99% likelihood it's the same person. I don't feel violated in any way. I'd say, yeah, that's probably a, a net benefit. But what happens if I want to go to a demonstration? I happen to live in Seattle. I want to go to a demonstration because we've been under a consent decree for some of our police policing behaviors. Um, and do I want a drone up there taking photos of me that the government's collecting of how often I attend those things and by whom am I standing, with whom am I speaking, um, or it's not even there. It's just as I'm in public spaces going about lawful activities, should the government have a record 
that they can use and then identify me. And let me explain why I find this one really difficult. I used to do work and I lived for a while as a student in the Soviet Union. And our classic understanding in, in liberal societies is the definition of an authoritarian regime was something I personally experienced. Walking down a street and somebody uh, in a uniform or ununiform walking up, show me your documents. And you have to prove your, you know, who you are, where you are. With facial recognition and television and cameras, CCTV and other, you don't even get to know that you've now been accosted or somebody's watching you. You don't get to hide your face. In fact, if you do hide your face, that'll probably make you more interesting and they'll probably attack, attention, uh, put more attention to you. Um, so with this one, we're really concerned as Microsoft about notice issues of what's the notice of how this technology might be used? What's the ability for consent? How would you actually know that you should have given notice and you were denied the opportunity for consent? Um, and as uh, we look at this, we're clear that privacy matters around the world. Uh, as was mentioned, it's part of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, but one of the things we did, people might know about the GDPR, the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation. That came into force last year, um, about a year ago. And um, we have data for from May to September of 2018. So after it come into effect in May, Microsoft unilaterally chose to apply it globally, even though it literally only applied uh, in the European Union. Uh, when we put out our ability for people to ask us under the GDPR, under the regulation that the Europeans passed about our uh, behavior with data about them, we had uh, in, in four months, five million people from two, uh, nearly 200 countries ask us for data. And inside that, we had two million Americans. So this is not you know, some European issue. This is a global issue. How are we going to deal with privacy? And how are we going to address issues like facial recognition. So to get at that, last July, uh, middle of July, we put out a blog and we said, uh, the title of it was Facial Recognition Technology, the Need for Public Regulation and Corporate Responsibility. We asked for US laws to be passed and regulations to be adopted here. We think we have the most moral and uh, suasive power when we're speaking to, as an American company to America, but we also said we think this is a global problem and countries across the globe should address this. Then in December of this year, uh, we put out a new blog, and this one was unpacking what we'd said originally. We put forth six principles to guide Microsoft's facial recognition work. And I'll just mention fairness, transparency, and under transparency, we noted we're gonna document what we can about the way our, pro our product works. So we've made very public calls that we think there should be an ability for people to see what are the training sets, the data training sets, that make the machine operate the way it does so that people can test it. Um, we've said it ought to be open to independent, trusted third-party testing to actually see how the, not the code, but to see how it operates in practice. Uh, we've said accountability is a key uh, principle for us, non-discrimination. So we, not only do we build it in a way that we try to be non-discriminatory, but we uh, noted we will prohibit in our terms of service the use of our technology to engage in unlawful discrimination. We had to work in the word unlawful because some discrimination is by definition what you do when you identify something as being A and not B, but it's the unlawful that we're saying we are going to prohibit that. Um, and then we, we are going to encourage private sector customers to provide notice and, and, uh, and to secure consent for their uses of the technology. Um, and then I, I Finally, we had one that was on lawful surveillance, which will take us right back to what Amy had asked me to speak about. And we said, we will advocate for safeguards for people's democratic freedoms in law enforcement surveillance scenarios. And we will not deploy facial recognition technology in scenarios that we believe will put those freedoms at risk. So there's a Washington state statute that now, uh, a law currently in front of the Washington state legislature that embodies most of these principles. It's actually a privacy law to reinforce based upon GDPR and what California and some others have done to talk about privacy for citizens. Uh, it's always been a constitutional right, but improving the statutory framing of it. And we've worked in then um, limitations on the appropriate use in Washington, lawful use of facial recognition. So in that, we worked with um, many, many uh, parties. ACLU of Washington is a very vocal advocate against any such use of uh, facial recognition. 
we took the position, though we, we met with them and we meet with them regularly, um, we think there are beneficial uses of it um, and that those should be permitted, but there, should, there are harmful uses and those are what should be prescribed and, and made illegal. So we have called for a lot of transparency in it um, and, a, uh, and are, it's not currently a law that's passed. It's not our law. It's a Washington law where we've tried to contribute um, our perspectives. And I'll, I'll close by just noting, we do this globally. We believe our responsibility as a global tech company um, of our size is actually to advocate for responsible public policies that advance civil rights, rule of law. We want to inform about the nature of the technology and the nature of how it can be used, and then encourage democratic processes uh, to put together the regimes, whether it's regulations or statutes, prohibitions or safe harbors to uh, drive behaviors in a way that actually improve and are human-centered, as we described it. Steve, thanks so much. That was a lot of information to unpack, so thank you. Um, I have a question, it's sort of related to I think what you talked about, but one thing I think about, not just with technology, but in general, um, we see these sort of interesting private governance efforts, and, and it's kind of the same actors every time, it's the same companies. But we know in the tech space, even though yes, we all focus on Microsoft and Google and Facebook, et cetera, there's a whole lot of other companies out there. And some of them either purposely are bad actors or simply don't have much, much in the way of standards. So what do we do about laggards? And, and can private governance address that or is that where we need something else? Um, great question. There are a number of um, issues that are in the question you asked. So one of those is what do we do about, think of it as the tail if you have a, a chart, your classic chart and way off, you know, going to the far right, you have this tale of the exceptional cases. Um, we have that problem in freedom of expression and uh, privacy for the internet generally. In facial recognition, uh, there's a group that's the Partnership on AI, which is again a multi-stakeholder. Governments are there. Uh, Baidu from China just joined. Uh, Microsoft is uh, a founder of that. And there we're pulling together um, industry and uh, academics, civil society, to discuss what are the appropriate things. And one of the things in a committee I'm on uh, that we're working through is how do we develop, whether you want to call it a checklist or a set of, of diligence questions, what are the sorts of questions that everyone ought to be asking any purveyor of an artificial intelligence solution? Have you thought about this and what can you tell us about this question of fairness, of bias? Um, we, we have as Microsoft, we're advocating uh, pretty publicly now, a notion we call that we want to push through to the lowest players as well, and that would be lowest size. That is something we're calling uh, data sheets for data sets. Uh, the analogy here is actually if you are in uh, US or Europe, uh, if you buy a small box of over-the-counter pills, you'll pull out this thin sheet of paper that'll have all these contraindications. Similar things happen for the components to build a computer there are these data sheets that come up and say, well, it functions well with this kind of currency. It starts uh, uh, misbehaving if the temperature exceeds this range, uh, those sorts of things. So we're saying, actually, we need to leverage that sort of approach that has worked really well to inform people and, in, and it, get the right questions asked of companies uh, for uh, AI. What, what are your data sets? What are you using? Um, how have you tested it? What are your known weaknesses in its use? What's an appropriate uh, tested use? And where do you know it would be inappropriate or think somebody would have to uh, do extra work to uh, confirm that it actually works for a particular scenario? Because ultimately, AI tools are, are, are that. They're tools. So they're sort of like uh, going into a, a uh, really good lumber hardware uh, emporium and you buy all sorts of things and now you're going to build something. But what are you actually going to do with it? It's fine if it's a treehouse, but if you're actually building you know, a 60 floor skyscraper, you might not want to just be using timber and the nails you picked up that the lowest cost. Similarly, we have to think about technology tools in that frame. Great, well, thank you, Steve. Um, because we're a little short on time, I want to make sure the audience gets to ask some questions. So I'm not gonna have a moderated discussion right now and actually turn it over to the audience. I'll take two questions at a time. Um, we're gonna start in the back with the lady with the colorful head Adornment. 
Thank you. Wow, this is this is really good. I was tweeting uh, quite a bit. I'm Rachel. Um, I've worked in human rights and so uh, and uh, somewhat in the tech tech sphere because I once upon a time worked in anti-human trafficking, looking at the tech nexus uh, with fighting human trafficking. But from the NGO perspective, uh, I've done a lot of work over the years with human rights defenders in different countries, and so I wanted to ask. Um, in recent years, especially in 2018, uh, there was a high incidence of human rights defenders being um, assassinated throughout uh, different different parts of, of, of our world, especially in Central and South America. And I'm wondering if any of your organizations or companies are helping provide the technology that will help protect the communications and the just the safety and well-being of um, of human rights defenders. Thank you. Thanks, and I think there's someone else right in the back as well, right in front of her. Let's, yeah, thank you. Please, please just identify yourself quickly and then keep your questions quick if you can. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> uh, my name is Sean Ling from Maxwell School. So uh, my question is actually, uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, Huawei, about uh, Huawei's helping China building the surveillance state right in Xinjiang area, including the incarceration of many uh, Uyghurs. So just wondering, um, uh, since Huawei is so uh, aggressively pushing their, uh, for example, uh, one-stop solutions for smart cities, so they are pushing their strategy globally. So many of the data actually in other countries actually end up in the, maybe the cloud service in, in China, and the Chinese government can assess this information freely. So I'm just wondering any ways that uh, many of the cities, when they uh, consider their supply chains anyway, they can put ethical rules in, in the process. How do they you know, control this uh, process? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I think I'll let my, does anyone want to take the first question? On the, on the first one on human rights defenders, BSR, Business Social Responsibility, is that their, uh, uh, put out a report on uh, human rights defenders, the state of them. Uh, Bennett Freeman, who might be bouncing around, is the author of that. I saw him earlier today here. Um, so we as Microsoft, I'm probably the only one who can answer it because I'm the only company up here, but we support um, various initiatives that way. Part of it is, of course, encryption, uh, really strong encryption, which gets us into the encryption debate of back doors. Um, and then the other is there are organizations that um, uh, access now and others who do things where if somebody is known to have lost um, a phone or been a, is missing and is uh, that sort of thing, there are ways where people can work uh, through organizations like that to try to um, provide assistance to those people. I'll just say very quickly, um, going back to my prior life at the State Department and the Human Rights Bureau, Democracy Bureau, uh, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Liberty, DRL at State, we funded a significant amount of work and DRL still funds a lot of work on what's called digital safety and security, which is both developing technology specifically to help keep um, human rights defenders, activists safe, uh, but then also training them um, in how to use that and how to avoid some of the pitfalls. Happy to talk afterwards about that. Great. And Jason, were you going to pick up the second question? Oh. Um, Sorry, I thought you said you were. Oh, uh, no. I was saying on this first one. On the second one, um, yeah, I mean, I think this issue of um, trust with respect to technology um, is is really fundamental. And it, that's been sort of clear for a lot of people uh, with respect to the um, user-facing products and services, whether it's software or social media platforms, search engines for some time. Um, but clearly now questions are being asked, and I think rightly so, about um, technology that's further down in the what technologists call the stack, right? Further down, more removed from the platform layer where users are typically interfacing. Um, because there are vulnerabilities there. Um, there are security concerns and privacy concerns that are, that are very relevant. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this has become politicized, um, but I think it, overall, it, these are good questions that are being asked. Um, and knowing what jurisdictions companies store their data in and what processes they have in place to address government requests or demands for that data uh, is really important. Um, that's part of why GNI exists, to help provide a certain amount of confidence to users. Um, we do not have uh, Huawei uh, as a member. Um, uh, we did just have, I will just take the opportunity to say, um, just yesterday announced our first 
company from Asia joining as an observer, which is Line Corporation out of Japan, which does um, provide social media services in, in a, mostly in, in the Asian market. We're very excited about that. That's great. And Eric, you wanted to come in. Uh, just one thing I'll note. Uh, there's been a proliferation of what I'll call uh, data localization laws, uh, laws that require companies to keep data in a local country. Um, with the idea that that anomaly is supposed to advance their, the privacy of those uh, users, but it's usually actually a, a honeypot for the government to be able to access it. So um, data localization laws, I think, are a problem. And if you have an opportunity to combat them, I encourage you to do so. Great. All right. Are there some more questions? Let's come over to the side of the room with this gentleman and then the lady in the aisle. Hi, my name is Sarath Ganji. I'm with the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Um, I used to do work on labor rights in the Arabian Gulf, and there um, the challenge is subcontracting um, at the secondary and tertiary levels, and how does the guiding principles apply to it? I'm curious first if that challenge exists within the ICT sector, and then second, if so, um, what uh, human rights due diligence processes have corporate compliance divisions applied uh, in terms of breadth uh, but also more so depth at the subcontracting level. Thanks. That's a great question. And now we'll go here. Thanks. Hi, I'm Marty Flax with the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. Um, it was our report you just referenced, so thanks. And a uh, shout out to Microsoft for actually being really helpful in thinking through the case studies in that report and also helping us disseminate it. You guys hosted us in Seattle a few weeks ago, and, um, so thanks for that. But I actually had a different question. Um, I wanted to ask, we've been focused a lot on the ICT sector itself and the human rights conversation, but since we're at a global development forum, um, I wanted to ask about the impact of technology and human rights on other sectors, and in particular in the context of job creation. Um, I was at the Mo Ibrahim Governance Forum last weekend, and they had a debate about whether technology was a job killer or job creator. But it was not a debate at all, because the entire audience said it's a job creator. We don't have to worry about risk at this point in Africa. Um, and since we heard this morning about the 1.3 million jobs have to be created every month in Africa to keep up with population growth, um, we know that there are risks both uh, from technology, both from the quantity of jobs created um, versus undermined, but also the quality of jobs. And I think that piece of the debate is a little bit missing when you're talking about um, employing people in 15-minute increments and are they contractors or employees, under what conditions are they working. So I just wanted to hear from you all how you're thinking about the role of technology in job creation or destruction. I'm going to, and then we'll, we'll take more questions in a second. I'm going to briefly respond actually to the first question in the sense that I think the question about, I think the question was, should companies that purport to be responsible be thinking about sort of their value chain and whether the, the members of their value chain are also responsible, which obviously the UN guiding principles do call for. And I think that's going to be a really key method to get at some of these companies that I mentioned that maybe aren't purposely bad actors, but they just don't have very strong, um, you know, they don't have an approach on human rights, they're not thinking about it, they're not integrating privacy into how they act, for example. Um, does anyone else want to pick up that question? Steve, okay. Or, so um, on the first one, it's not that the larger the company, the better the job they do on those issues. But I think the larger the company, the more attention they pay to those issues. So at Microsoft, Google, um, Apple, all of us do manufacturing. So I'm using a Microsoft Surface that has rare earth components. Uh, so we have issues like the cobalt. Um, you know, how do you track beyond the smelter deeper into um, all of the sources of the cobalt. We work very closely on that, so we have um, a, a full organization that's focused on supply chain, whether it's uh, the extractives or it's the manufacturing, uh, you know, the movement of goods, all of those things. So I do think that's a part that every major tech company understands. I think as you move lower into the size of the organization and you start having fewer and fewer people, you, people don't invest immediately either in a human rights group or perhaps in as much attention to supply chain issues as they should. I do think as they mature, they then um, both come to understand the issue better and there's more attention, which is critical from third parties who start questioning what is happening in that space. So I think that one's good. And I've forgotten now the second well, question. Jason, do you want to come in very quickly on the first one? Well, Steve can touch on the labor question. Yeah. Jobs. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that one. Uh, that one's a really tough one for me because I'm not a specialist there. I'm not an economist. We do have a chief economist who has very strong views on this. Let me tell you how I approach it with 
a caveat. This is not a Microsoft statement, but it's somebody who thinks about these issues and is responsible for thinking uh, about these things uh, with being informed by what I understand from my Microsoft experience. One of the realities is um, when you mentioned, for example, the, um, uh, the fact of 50-minute jobs and the rest, the gig economy is not directly necessarily associated with the rise of tech. It's something that is possible, but there are lots of tech jobs that are not that way. Um, and one of the things that I've found, and this is based on a number of conversations in panels uh, that I've heard as opposed to been the expert on, there is an infinite demand in uh, humanity for more services and better care and better, more humane treatment. And so who knows what we're actually going to be able to now make accessible to us, whether it's cultural benefits or uh, health care, um, you know, mechanisms by which more attention is paid to children and youth. Um, one of the things that I heard once, and I've always been struck by, if we really are worried about jobs, just pure jobs, the first thing we ought to do is outlaw all earth-moving equipment, because for most of human history, almost everybody spent their time moving earth in one fashion or another, whether it was farming or building a dike or building a, a crude dam. We did rid of that and other jobs come as a result of that. I'm not saying there's a guaranteed path we can identify from the advancement of tech, but I do think we ought to be optimistic about human ability to recognize the challenge, learn from our experiences. This isn't the first um, manufacturing or technical revolution we've been through. We definitely need to study the, the past things, see what's gone wrong, and, and imagine what we can do better, and then uh, be committed to making this next transition easier. To me, again, I'd say sitting and listening to panels, it's easy for me to hear people be quite optimistic about where we're going to be in 20 or 30 year. The hard question is what happens to those who are displaced now and don't really have the benefit of getting retrained for the other thing that eventually might show up. And that's where I think we have to be committed as human beings to, to do the right thing as opposed to say we know the right answer. I'm going to try to catch one more question. Any hands? Let's get the lady up here on the front. Sorry, I'm sorry we can't get to everybody. Thank you. Um, my name is Mercedes Garcia. I'm from the Embassy of Spain, but I also represent the European Union where I, I belong. Um, I was um, delighted to hear that uh, GDPR through Microsoft's global activity has become sort of a global standard, but um, technology moves so quickly that I'm sure through that application of the norm, you've also found out about possible loopholes. So I wanted to ask, you know, what's next? What are the loopholes that the GDPR might have left not addressing? Um, and what are the key areas that you think regulators need to be thinking about um, in terms of human rights, uh, links, um, and effects of technology? Thank you. All right, I'm going to cut off the questions there for time reasons. And anyone's allowed to go at that, but you have to keep your response to 30 seconds or less. All right, 30 seconds start now. Um, I would say the key thing to do in all of these regulations, GDPR or any of the things that Eric mentioned, is think about state of the art as opposed to a particular solution. So consent, that is, an, is something we're going to have to see evolve as the nature of consent and the uses to which data is put changes. And so I don't have particular things. I would say let's be creative and think about moving ourselves with the state of the art as opposed to being locked in, as Eric noted, to old solutions to yesterday's problems. Well, I just wanted to touch on one of the earlier points um, regarding sort of third parties and suppliers, just to say the GNI principles outside of, we don't work on the sort of tech hardware um, side of things on the job side or on the environmental impacts, but specifically with regard to free expression and privacy, the principles say that companies um, will implement the principles when they have operational control, which is a term of art from the UN guiding principles, and when they do not have operational control, participating companies will use best efforts to ensure that business partners, investors, suppliers, distributors, and other relevant parties follow these principles. So there is a conscious effort to have this flow down. To Marty's question, we don't work on job issues, employment issues either, but I was interested in what you said about the Mo Ibrahim Forum and the reaction there. I think that to me resonates with one of the things I've observed as Steve as kind of an outside observer is that it, a lot of it, how you approach this depends on where you sit. In Africa, where perhaps baseline sort of job security and the quality of jobs is not great, technology is seen as an opportunity for better jobs, different jobs new jobs. Um, in the West, where people generally feel relatively comfortable with their job security, technology may be seen with a bit more angst and, 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 and anxiety, right? 
I just want to thank the panelists. We are out of time. I brought to be kicked out of the room, I think, but um, please give them a round of applause and thank you for coming.